Welcome back to the Vine Church Podcast. Today, we are continuing our sermon series, Seeing Jesus, exploring the first nine chapters of Luke's Gospel. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Heart, and we'd love to have you join us over there. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, if you have your Bibles, let's open them up to Luke chapter 8, picking up where we left off last week. Uh, Luke 8, verses 40 to 56. So I'll give you a moment to find it. Cool. So Luke 80, verses 40 to 56 says this. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been the subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she had not gone unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John and James and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Let's pray as God speaks to us through his word. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you come to us, Lord, that you come to us in spirit and in word. And Lord, we ask that as we hear your word this morning, that it would impact us, that it would encourage us, that it would give us a passion for everything that you are in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So if you've had a conversation with me in the last six weeks for anything more than about 10 minutes, you've probably heard about a book that I read a few weeks ago, which was probably the most interesting book, or at least one of the most interesting books I ever read. It's called The Righteous Mind by uh, an American moral psychologist called Jonathan Haidt. And essentially, I mean, there's lots of things that the book talks about, but the main thing is that the way that we think about morality always puts us in the right 
And he's looking at how different cultures and different people uh, work through morality. And there's, the way that he describes it is kind of there's six categories in our moral palate as humans. So just as you know, in your taste palate you have sweet and salty and savory, in the same way for morality we kind of have six categories. So we have uh, fairness and cheating. We have uh, care and harm. Two, we have uh, authority and subversion. We have cleanness, sanctity, and degradation. Uh, and I don't know how many I've said, but there's two more. Um, and essentially, the, the argument is, in almost everywhere in the world, all six are used to form moral judgments. In the West, we're really only good at using care and harm. So when we're talking about moral issues, we'll almost always say, well, no one's getting hurt. So it's fine. So they put various questions forward to kind of Western people and non-Western people to gauge their reaction. So one example is they say, your dog is run over by a car outside your house. Your family decide to take it inside because it's now dead, cook it and eat it. Now most people in the West go, that's disgusting. But I'm not sure I'd say it's immoral. Whereas everywhere else in the world they say, that's disgusting, therefore immoral. And the point is that we kind of, we think about dirt and, and cleanliness in morality, but we kind of don't let it come in too much. And yet, almost all psychological tests have shown that Western people very much do think about dirt and uncleanness when it comes to morality. A really interesting study was that uh, people standing next to hand sanitizer machines are more likely to be harsher in their moral judgments. If you've been discussing with a psychologist things which we would consider quite gross, often kind of uh, sexual things, there was a study where they, they did these things and then uh, presented a whole load of things they could take home after, uh, just included Monday household object. And almost 90% of Western people took hand sanitizer. People want to feel clean when they've become dirty. We even use it in words to describe people who are immoral. He's a dirty politician. He's a dirty cop. When something's, uh, as I say, morally kind of gross, we call it smut. It's dirt. We very much associate what's wrong and what's right with dirt. We want the dirt away from us. Now, that's even more so the case in ancient Israel. Because in Israel, under the Mosaic Covenant, before Jesus comes, you have cleanliness built into the fabric of the culture, unclean and clean people. The, the law of Moses is traditionally understood as containing three parts. You have the moral law, tells us what's wrong and what's right. The civil law, which tells governments how they should enforce crimes. And then the ceremonial law, which governs how people can come before God. And the ceremonial law, as you go through um, Numbers and Leviticus, how many people, when you're doing a, a Bible in a year plan, get to Leviticus and think, oh, this is great material. I wish we'd do this in a sermon series. It tends to be where most people get stuck. Because clean and unclean, send them away, keep them in, is very much the theme of the book. The ceremonial law is, is talking about how can an unclean person approach a holy God. So it has very clear categories. And so that becomes really inbuilt into the way that they think. I just want to read from uh, Numbers, chapter 5. Numbers 5, verses 1 to 4 says this. 
The Lord said to Moses, command the Israelites to send away from the camp anyone who has a defiling skin disease or a discharge of any kind or who is ceremonially unclean because they've touched a dead body. Send away male and female alike. Send them outside the camp so that they will not defile the camp where I dwell among them. The Israelites did so. They sent them outside the camp. They did just as the Lord had instructed Moses. That's built into that culture. And the message there is uncleanness spreads. It is a non-relational, non-feeling transaction. You've bought a house and you go to sleep in the bed that was there when you bought it. And then the next day someone says, the previous owner died in that bed. Whether you knew that or not, you are now unclean. To say, well, I didn't know that when I got into it is not an excuse. It's non-relational. You are unclean. And therefore, you're sent out of the camp. Once it's in, once this uncleanness comes among us, it will spread. That has some connotations for the last year and a half. Once this comes in, it starts to spread amongst us. So we're going to keep it away. As I say, this is not something that they would need reminding of. They know unclean and clean straight away because this is what the culture is built on. Things become so culturally embedded that no one needs to remind you. A silly example is who shops at Lidl and finds that they just chuck all the things at you as you go through the till? I recently found out the reason is, in Germany, they take all the shopping in the trolley, go to the boot of their car, and bag it there. So they can just chuck it in. But because we are so culturally embedded that we pack our shopping at the till, we're going, I can't keep up, I can't keep up. Things are so culturally embedded that you don't even think twice. You don't even think there is another way to do this. And so they would just hear clean, unclean, present anything towards them, they could tell you, clean, unclean, because this is what the culture is built on. And so with that in mind, let's just examine the last two paragraphs that we've looked at, what we've just read this week and what Andy preached on last week. Last week, you had Jesus crossing to the Gerasenes, the land of the Gentiles. To be a Gentile is to be unclean. So he goes to the unclean, And there, he finds a man with an unclean demon, it says. In other words, the unclean among the unclean. They're there um, farming pigs, an unclean animal. And Jesus comes to this man. And then we move into the next story, which we've just read, about Jesus first being touched by an unclean woman with a bleeding issue. And then he goes from there and touches a dead body. Jesus should be unclean. From verse 26 to the end of this chapter is all about Jesus being with those who are unclean. How is Jesus doing this? Is Jesus there to remove their superstition, to say, guys, you really shouldn't think in these categories anymore? There really is no such thing as clean and unclean. Come on, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do it to show you. Is that what Jesus is doing? Is it that he doesn't care? Is it that Jesus is going, well, I'm willing to become unclean for you? You have to bear in mind that Jesus knows that these laws, just as it says in Numbers 5, were from God, not from man. These are divine laws, and the Bible tells us that Jesus is sinless. So somehow, fully believing that this law is legitimate, Jesus 
It's acting seemingly against it. How? It is because uncleanness becomes clean simply at the touch of Jesus because it does not have the power to stand against his overflowing, overwhelming, infinite life. He cannot be overwhelmed. He overwhelms. And really, this brings us back to understanding who God is himself in his very being. The Westminster Confession of Faith, probably the best document uh, outlining Christian doctrine in chapter 2, says this. There is only one living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a completely pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts or passions, unchangeable, immensely vast, eternal, limitless, almighty, completely wise, completely holy, completely free, and completely absolute. God has all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness in and of himself. He alone is the fountain of all being, by whom, through whom, and to whom everything is exists. This is who God is. God overflows. God is infinite with every attribute that makes God, God. If God were any less good than he is, he would cease to be God. If God were any less powerful, he would cease to be God. God infinitely overflows with who he is, with life, purity, and holiness. So when Jesus, God in the flesh, comes into contact with uncleanness, is he defiled by it? Is he overwhelmed by it? No. If you take a hot coil of metal and dunk it in cold water, that hot coil of metal becomes cold. However, if that hot coil of metal is plugged into an electric plug, and you flick it on, yes, I'm talking about a kettle, then that hot coil, which now has this seemingly infinite flow of power going into it, is not overwhelmed by the cold water. It overwhelms it, and the cold water, as much as it may try and fight against it, itself becomes hot. And there you go, I've just vindicated the British love of tea. Every time you put the kettle on, you can think I'm, I'm acting out some profound theological mystery. And sometimes some of these attributes of God can seem to be a little bit abstract or propositional without any real meaning for our lives. It's good to pontificate on God's infinite nature. But this story presents us with two people who find just how practical this reality really is. We're first introduced to a named character a man called Jairus. And Luke says, Jairus, the synagogue leader, he names him because people reading this when Luke wrote it would know who he's talking about. You know Jairus, the synagogue leader? Oh, yeah, I know Jairus. If I were to just start talking about my friend Henry, it would mean nothing to you. If I named him or not named him, you still don't know who he is. So the fact that he's named says he is someone. People know him. And he has respect among the people. He's the synagogue leader. And he comes to Jesus. He approaches Jesus in the proper way. And he asks for his help. The time is short and my daughter is dying. Please come with me. 
this respected man, the man of respect, needs Jesus and so calls him to himself. And Jesus begins that urgent journey. He begins to go where this respected man has asked him to go. But then we find that the story is interrupted by the opposite character, an unnamed, anonymous, outcast woman. No one would know who she is. She has been outside of the camp for 12 years. Leviticus 15, verse 25, which governs this woman's condition, says this, when a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge, just as in the days of her period. Any bed she lies on while her discharge continues will be unclean, as is her bed during her monthly period, and anything that she sits on will be unclean as during her period. Anyone who touches them will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be unclean until the evening. Twelve years of that. No one can touch her. No one can touch the things that she has touched. This is her life. She has suffered with no help. Mark tells us she has suffered under many physicians. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that we have the medical knowledge that we have today as compared to pretty much any other period in human history. To have a lifelong condition and go to the physician back then would not be a fun thing to do. She has suffered physically and psychologically and emotionally. She has no social contact. She is as good as dead. We use that phrase, a dead man walking. Here we have a dead woman walking. Just imagine that feeling that she would have as she sees Jesus there. I've heard about this guy. I know about this guy. He's the one who's healed lots of people's lepers who can't be touched. He's healed them. Her heart starts to pump fast in her chest and she's hiding her face because if anyone sees that she's there, she will be cast out. She's knowing how nothing else has worked. Twelve years are leading up to this. I shouldn't be here, but I need to get to him. He's on his way to help someone respectable who needs him. If I can just... It's been 12 years. I can't go on like this. So she uses the anonymity of the crowd. She presses in around with them. And suddenly she gets to that point and grabs the garment. Something's changed. I'm healed. She feels it. Who can she share this joy with? No one around her can know that she's there. And so she holds it to herself and just knows it's stopped. How overwhelming. Right, need to get out of here. So she turns, covers her face again, starts the, the walk away, and then hears, who touched me? <sighs> 
she hears the disciples saying, you're literally being touched by everyone. What do you mean, who touched you? No, who touched me? Why did Jesus ask this question? Was it from ignorance? See, often this passage gets pointed to as when people say, Jesus' human nature was not omniscient like his divine nature. He doesn't know everything. He's ignorant. But I don't think that's what's happening here. I think Jesus asks precisely because he does know. Jesus is asking for the same reason that back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve have sinned against God, God stands afar and says, where are you? He draws them in with a question. My favorite theologian, Herman Barvink, on that story of God asking the question in Genesis 3, says this. He does not abandon them to their own folly and fears that prompt them to seek refuge in hiding from him. Of his own accord, he himself calls them back to him. In so doing, he does not take them by surprise and terrify them. He comes to them, as it were, from a great distance. He does not come to them in a hurricane or a thunderstorm, but in the cool of the day, in the solemn rustling of the trees in the evening. And from that, they recognize the voice of God and perceive his approach. This drawing near to them is grace. God gives people time to come to themselves and consider how they will answer him. That's God in the garden. And now we have Jesus doing the same thing. He asks the question to beckon her to himself because he knows what has just happened. So she comes, and Luke specifically tells us that she comes trembling. She shouldn't have come. She, she falls down and says, this rabbi is going to rebuke me. I didn't know it was possible to feel more of an outcast than I already do. And as she sits there on her knees, expecting that rebuke, what she hears instead, daughter, your faith has made you well. Come up. Jesus refuses to let her be an unknown benefiter of the grace of God. He refuses to have this woman think that I can simply get from God and he doesn't need to know anything about me. He refuses for her to be an it. So we we have two kinds of relationships. We have I-it relationships and we have I-you relationships. My relationship with my phone is an I-it relationship. I use it. It is useful to me. My relationship with my wife is an I-you relationship. Anna, wherever you are, I love you. Often if you work for a company, you might have an it relationship with it. I work for the company. It employs me. Hopefully with your church, 
You have an IU relationship. Church, I care for you. And Jesus refuses her to be an it. He wants an IU relationship with her. And in this exchange, this anonymous woman is given the only name that we have for her in this passage, daughter. No longer is she a nobody. She is a recipient of the personal, relational grace of God. And he doesn't say to her, you've been made well, so go back to being an outsider. Go back to your house with no one in it. Just don't bleed anymore. No, he says, go in peace. That Hebrew word shalom, fullness, wholeness, be a whole person in community. Go in peace, precious daughter, you are not unknown to me. And the overwhelming life and cleanness of God cannot be defiled by this woman's uncleanness. Instead, it overpowers it and makes her whole and at peace and known. Jesus is on an urgent journey to save a young girl's life, but she is worth his time. She is worth a delayed trip. She is worth Jesus' time, even when she is worth no one else's. She has just experienced what power there is in the infinite, unoverwhelmable God. And while she and Jesus are still talking, and I imagine she is still trying to take in what has just happened, Jairus' servant comes along. And he says, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And I can only imagine that he says that slightly snarkily as he looks at the woman thinking, you're bothering the teacher. Jairus may be thinking, this woman who isn't supposed to be here anyway has taken the time that was supposed to be for me and my daughter and now she's dead. But Luke specifically tells us that before Jairus can say anything, before anything like that could even come to his lips, Jesus stops him. Don't be afraid. Only believe. The unoverwhelmable God once more shows how unoverwhelmable he is. He has enough time for all who come to him. This delay has not overwhelmed his ability to give grace to both. He has time for both, without one overpowering the other. And so Jesus continues, continues on this journey, seemingly pointless now. At least she was close to death earlier, but now she is dead. He comes to the house, and he finds mourners and wailers already there. The noise would be able to be heard from down the street. And taking the hand of a dead girl... We just read in Numbers 5, Jesus, you can't touch a dead body. You're now unclean. Jesus, you're ritually dead. 
Jesus is unfazed, and once more he speaks. Mark tells us that in Aramaic he said, Talitha kum, which a very kind of literal translation would be, little girl, get up, but it's, it lacks the affection that's there in the original Aramaic. It's more like, sweetheart, dear child, get up. And even death, the great enemy, the last enemy, which has had its grip on humanity ever since the fall, even now death finds that in the presence of Jesus, at the touch of Jesus, its grip cannot help but be loosened. And even death cannot hold this girl from the overwhelming power of Jesus. A preview of the fact that Jesus in his ministry is going to bring the decisive blow to the head of death, which we have now uh, is guaranteed, but we wait for that day. Jesus has come to bring an end to death. And far from being made unclean in all these stories, Jesus works through situation into situation, not being defiled, but loosening these people from their brokenness. Jesus' overflowing purity is not defiled by contact, but itself brings cleanness. It transforms wastelands to life. He is the unoverwhelmable God. I'm pretty sure that's a made-up word, but it'll do because nothing else can describe it. Do you feel as though you are too dirty for God? As though you carry shame? Are your anxieties too much for God to help, or are they too small to bother him with? If Jesus can be touched by a corpse and an outcast woman, how much more can we approach him? Where are you in the story? Are you respectable? Are you an outcast? Are you known? Are you anonymous? Are you lying there dead? Are you dirty? Do you feel that constant need to be washing your hands Are you incapable of helping yourself? Who can take your weight and your burdens and your anxieties and your deadness without being overwhelmed by them? Jesus can. He is the unoverwhelmable one when we are overwhelmed. The Bible commands us in Galatians to bear one another's burdens. And we try to do that. But we know that everyone has a burden. Every single person here in this room has a burden, even if they haven't told anyone about it. And when we share our burdens with one another, it's not as though they can just take theirs off and put yours on. We are burdening people with more burdens. And that's not a discouragement from sharing and being real with one another, but it's simply taking into account the reality of the fact that we are broken. We have a limit. And we, particularly Brits, are the type of people who, when we feel our world is falling apart around us, and someone says, how are you? We say, yeah, get in there. Yeah, fine, yeah, fine, thanks. Because we know that we can't even bear our own burdens. Why would someone else be able to bear it? But Jesus, his 
life, his love, and his purity, and his strength are not compromised by you giving to him what he offers to take. One of the most precious verses in the New Testament is 1 Peter 5 verse 7. And it says this, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Cast is that word throw. When you throw something, it feels heavier when you catch it than if you were to just drop it. But it says, that's what Peter encourages us to do, throw your anxieties and your burdens on him. And even with the weight that they land on him, it's not too much. Jesus can do more than I or anyone else in the church can do. He cares more than I can possibly care. He can bear more than I can bear. If you think you're too dirty for God, you don't know how clean he is, which sounds like an oxymoron. But this is the infinitely clean God. If you find yourself thinking that the fountain of his grace must have gone dry for me by now, you don't know how infinitely deep it runs for you. If he can touch the dead, make clean the outcast, how much more can he bear what we bring to him? He is the unoverwhelmable God. And just like that woman did who went away called daughter, we too must grab hold of him by faith, reaching out our hands to him and saying, Lord, I need you. This morning, whoever you are, wherever you are, come to Jesus. Take hold of him. Come trembling at his feet and be restored. Hear him say, daughter, son, go in peace. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we don't have the words to describe your beauty, your glory, your majesty. Lord, Isaiah sees you in the temple and trembles because it's too much for him to take in. And Lord, he declares, I am unclean. How can I come to you? But Lord, as he comes into your presence, you meet him with grace and say, I have taken away your sin Lord, we want to feel that this morning. We want to feel that word from you that we are clean before you because you have set your Holy Spirit in us. You have set that infinite, overwhelming with life, power that is you in your people. Lord, I pray for anyone here who, or who's listening who is broken, who needs you. Lord, come to them, we pray. Lord, encourage all of us to reach out our hands by faith. Do this in our lives, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.